if the RBA continues to think its rate rises should be having an impact on on certain inflation, petrol, electricity, housing, that they're kidding themselves. It's not that's not that's not where the interest rate rise has the impact. The interest rate rise has the impact on discretionary income spend. Um, and I would argue that even though house prices have, out of every uh, asset in the world, nearly all of them have gone down as rate rises have gone up, except residential property in Australia. Yeah. And and that's not because of in, that's not because of monetary policy. That's because of the huge uh, uh, amount of demand. Hello and welcome to another episode of What's Not Priced In. As always, I'm joined by Greg Kenneman. Greg, welcome again. G'day, Kirill. How you going, mates? Not bad, not bad. Now, uh, it's, it's a bit warm here in Melbourne. How is it over in, in New South Wales? It's not too bad. It's, uh, I wouldn't say it's warm, but it's uh, it's getting a little bit balmy. So uh, I think there's, there's thunderstorms due at some point in the next couple of days. So yeah. warming up a little bit. It's been pretty cool here. So good to see some summer coming. Yeah, well, it's, uh, it's certainly warming up here and definitely warming up in, in the markets as well, if I can make a, a pun there. Um, now, we'll, we'll mention the interest rate decision by the Reserve Bank a bit later in the show, but I thought maybe we'd start off where we left off last week and then maybe talk about the action over in the US. Obviously, you said last episode that this was more of a, of a bounce in the US rather than a sustained rally, and that's because not necessarily of what the Fed did, but because the stocks were oversold late in October and it was due for a bounce. Now, stocks have continued to rally this week. I think uh, the big tech stocks have uh, rallied as well. I think Microsoft neared its all-time high overnight on Tuesday. We're recording this uh, on Wednesday. So what, what do you make of all of the moves? Have you changed your opinion about the bounce or the rally? No, not at all. I think, um, you know, that pretty much what we discussed last week uh, still stands in terms of the the interpretation. Uh, we recorded that last Thursday and that was in the midst of a, a pretty strong rally from US stocks. Uh, and then that day or that, um, that day's trading in the US, the Fed come out and indicated that uh, it was pretty much close to um, sitting pat on interest rates. Uh, so the market got an extra impetus from that. And pretty much when you get oversold conditions, the market will take those opportunities as a as a bullish signal. Um, so I don't think fundamentally there's any reason to justify this being a lasting bottom. And when you consider the fact that, yes, central banks may have uh, finally stopped raising rates for this cycle, uh, it doesn't mean that they're going to turn around and, and cut rates anytime soon. I think that's the... The key thing there is that this higher rates for longer will persist until the U.S. economy uh, slows uh, slows down quite sharply. And there are some charts that I'm going to show as we get into this uh, episode, which indicates that there's you know the U.S. economy is going into recession, uh, and and there's some reasons why that is not uh, evident at the moment. Uh, but the way the market is priced, it's pricing in a, a pretty robust earnings outlook for 2024. And if it doesn't pan out like that, uh, the US market is is pretty overvalued. Um, so you have to be cautious. And this rally, as I said, it's more of a reflexive rally based on oversold conditions. We're starting to clear those conditions now. So I wouldn't be surprised if we do get a bit of a pullback in the next couple of days. 
But having said that, we're moving into what is traditionally a a reasonably good seasonal uh, time for the market. The market traditionally rallies in November and, and December. They're traditionally pretty good months for the market. So don't be surprised if these conditions continue for, for a little bit longer, but I wouldn't say that you know the, the lows that we saw back in October are, are potentially lasting lows. I think there's still some more challenges to come. Yeah, and what would you say to to those in the market that are thinking the current rally is sort of based exclusively on the Fed probably stopping its rate path and those who are saying bond yields are going to continue to fall and therefore stocks are going to be relieved of that pressure and people are going to rush in and buy stocks? What, what would you say to them? Well, I guess there's two things that you've got to look at. The uh, One of the defining features over the past week or two has been the the big decline in long-term bond yields in in the US and you know also Australia the same things happen so the the US 10-year bond yield has fallen something like 30 or 40 basis points and that has been a big reason for the rally uh, in stocks purely because you know stocks have been going down because bond yields have been going up so now that bond yields start going up stocks are going to go up as well but the reason why i think the bond market is is reacting the way it is is because it's seeing this slowdown uh, in the US economy starting to emerge. And the big move was last week in the employment. When the employment indicators come out, uh, there was a revision down of of prior months as well. So the employment market is starting to cool and that was a a major factor for the higher for longer narrative. So if, and employment's a lagging indicator. So if employment is starting to show signs of cooling, that means that we are into into the slowdown. And I think, the bond market is starting to price that in. So again, the equity market responding positively to that is purely a reaction based on, uh, what do you call it, based on the the discount rate factor. So the fact that interest rates are, are lower um, for a given amount of earnings and cash flow, that the market will value, the stock market will value that higher. But if the bond yields are falling because of an economic slowdown, then you're going to get economic conditions that put pressure on earnings. And I looked earlier this week and based on forward-looking earnings, so the earnings outlook for 2024 in the US for S&P 500 companies, analysts have penciled in a 12% increase in earnings per share in 2024. Uh, And the stock market trades on a a forward PE of about 17.7 times those earnings. So that's probably, you could say, okay, that's a reasonable multiple um, but if you don't get those earnings, the multiple goes up to around 20 times. Um, and then when you're looking at a, a 10-year bond yield, which is still around 4.5, 4.6% in the US, at 20 times earnings, that's a 5% earnings yield. That's not much of a, a premium on stocks over the, the supposedly risk-free rate of, of the 10-year bond yield. So in my view, the US market is still considerably overvalued given that we are looking at uh, 2024 with considerable uh, inflation risks. And I don't think those, even the probability of inflation risks, I don't think is is being correctly priced in. Um, and and you, the equity risk premium is just historically very, very thin uh, at these levels. So that's, I guess that's my, that's my caution. In saying that in Australia, there are a number of, of quality stocks that have been mm-hmm. marked down. And I think we're getting to a point where you can buy uh, a lot of stocks at, at pretty good prices. Uh, the Aussie market is difficult in the same way that the US market's difficult to sort of 
look at because it is so uh, um, so influenced by those larger stocks in the index. And I'll, I'll show you a chart in a moment just to to ref- reflect that. But the Aussie market is is quite skewed by the the banks and the resources. And if you strip out the banks and the resources overall, the Aussie market isn't necessarily cheap. Um, so the banks and the res- big resource stocks generally trade on lower uh, multiples. So if you strip those out, the industrials and a lot of the other stocks on the Aussie market, you know, are, are not necessarily at, at cheap levels. But there are stocks within that uh, that I think are, are quite attractive. So if we do get some more weakness in the months ahead, uh, I think longer term investors should be taking those opportunities uh, to buy. I'm just saying I would caution against thinking now is a low and you can and you can get in and load up. I still think over the next few months you can chip away at the market and and take these positions in stocks. Uh, that sell off um, without getting too bullish and, and loading up at, at the moment. Yeah. And I think something I wanted to maybe mention a little bit, something what you said about bond yields. I th- it's something that I've uh, noticed, I think now for the whole year, where we're sort of in a bizarre world where sometimes bad economic news mean good news for stocks. And there's maybe a simplistic idea in some invest- for some investors that whatever leads to lower bond yields is good, hooray. And whatever leads to higher bond yields is bad and they boo it. But it, you sort of have to focus on exactly why, what causes the yields or the rates to fall. And if that's because the market expects the economy to stagnate or aggregate demand to plummet, that's not good news for earnings at all over the long term. And I think that's sort of where I think uh, that's something I've been noticing. and it, it doesn't really compute in my mind. I don't know whether it computes in yours. Well, often the market doesn't really make sense um, when uh, it first reacts to something and, and then uh, over time it becomes more apparent. And often when the market does react, it's not, it's not obvious at the time, but you know, as I said, it, you, know, you can, you can rationalise it and you, you can see what the market was seeing before everyone else. The market is far smarter than you or I, so I always make sure to, yeah. to give the market the benefit of the doubt plenty of times. I think in relation to what you're saying, what the what the market will respond positively to is a drop in inflation that doesn't necessarily mean a uh, a negative economic growth landing. outcome. So as long as as long as inflation, if inflation's coming down and that's the reason why bond yields are coming down, then the market will celebrate that. Mm-hmm. If if inflation is coming down because the economy is slowing very sharply, and that will impact on corporate earnings then that's not uh then that's not good my argument is that the the market at the moment is pricing in lower inflation but still benign economic conditions mm-hmm. and i i question whether that uh is is the right um is is the right interpretation and i'll i'll, I'll show you a chart just so you can get a sense of what uh i mean by that because i think Often people think, oh, it's just a matter of opinion. You're bullish or bearish, and um, uh, you know, if you are bullish, you'll have a certain um, bias, and if you're bearish, you'll have a certain mm-hmm. bias. So, um, these couple of charts come across uh, my desk this morning from Dave Rosenberg, who uh, runs an independent uh, economic research uh, shop. He's considered. Uh, to be to be bearish or to have a bearish slant, but as he often points out, he's only bearish when he thinks that uh, the the market is pricing in the wrong outcome. So yeah. this chart here shows leading and coincident indicators 
and the leading indicator is in red and the coincident indicator is in blue. So the leading indicators obviously show where uh, or indicate where the economy might be heading and the leading indicators in this instance are obviously slowing quite sharply. Mm-hmm. Whereas the coincident indicators, which is a reflection of what's happening on the ground at the moment, are still heading higher. And that's why you've got this real uh, different situation or weird situation where there's these constant calls and constant concerns about the US economy, will it or won't it go into recession? Everyone's pointing to these indicators that suggest it's slowing down, yet you're just not seeing that uh, in, in, the, in, the, in the data. And that this chart points that out quite clearly. So what uh, Dave did is he put this into another chart and said, the discrepancy this large is a reliable recession indicator. So every time you've seen this big divergence between coincident and leading, you can see that all through here. And, and we've got a pretty big divergence here. It's only um, probably bettered by the big uh, drop back in 2009. So this was the 2008-09 uh, divergence, very big one here. And each time you've seen these divergences, you've seen the US economy go into recession. So building on what we pointed out in the episode, I think it was the week before you got back, uh, just where I looked at Lacey Hunt's research, there was a number of indicators, um, things like monetary money growth, uh, bank credit creation, all those things are pointing to uh, recessionary conditions in the US. This is just another one. Um, and the fact that it hasn't happened yet, or the fact that we're still sitting there waiting for that, that mm-hmm. coincident indicator to roll over uh, doesn't necessarily mean it's, it's not going to happen. It's just going to take some time. And, you know, it doesn't necessarily mean this will drop down sharply as mm-hmm. well, but certainly the divergent should narrow. Um, so it, to me, again, it's all about probability. It's not about saying absolutely I think the US economy will go into recession and, mm-hmm. and don't buy any stocks until that happens. That's not how you should look at things. What you should look at is what is the market pricing in and what is the market not pricing in and what the market's not pricing in at the moment is the the greater likelihood of, of the US going into recession and the implications for economic, uh, for corporate earnings and the uh, effect on the, the PE ratio and, and things like that. And just to uh, point out, this is a chart showing the S&P 500 since the start of the year, uh, which includes obviously all the the big stocks, that's up nearly 14.5% from the start of the year. But when you look at it from an equal weight perspective, so um, stripping out the huge uh, market caps of your Microsofts and and Apples and all that sort of stuff, the S&P 500 equal weight is down, just down about 0.32% for the year. So that divergence, which is roughly 15%, it's all down to seven stocks. So if you haven't owned those seven stocks, you've gone nowhere. Uh, the S&P 500 has gone nowhere this year. Uh, but if you have, happy days, you're up 15%. And clearly you can see that big, big bounce we've seen over the past week. And while we're on the charts, let's just quickly run through. Uh, because last week, when we're looking at these charts, we were pointing out the RSI indicator, which is mm-hmm. A uh, short-term momentum indicator, and saying that you know obviously got very oversold at these levels, uh, and has since 
rebounded. So this is the S&P 500. We're getting back up, not quite in oversold, uh, sorry, overbought territory yet, and it may not get there, uh, but it certainly cleared that oversold condition that existed just a few weeks ago. Um, and just to go through quickly on some of these charts, here is the, the NASDAQ, uh, the Russell 2000. That's already started to pull back a little bit. So, you know, again, we've talked before about how the Russell 2000 mm -hmm. is a more of a small cap index for the US. It doesn't obviously have those large uh, mega, mega cap growth, uh, tech growth stocks in there. So this is f struggling far much more than the larger indices. Uh, and it's already hit a bit of resistance at this 50-day moving average. Um, so... That sort of indicates that this oversold condition is starting to clear. So it'll be interesting to see in the next week how this goes. And as you pointed out at the start, we're recording this um, at midday on Wednesday. I've got to travel tomorrow, so I couldn't record it at our usual time on Thursday. But um, So we're only sort of early into the week in the US trading week. Uh, and in terms of the Aussie market, this only shows uh, up to yesterday again we've only rallied back up to the 50-day moving average. So as much as everyone's getting excited about this rally, we're still in downtrend, uh, still below the moving averages here. Uh, and the, the market, Aussie market's up about 0.3% today. So might be getting towards that, uh, towards that area uh, today. And we just take a quick look at the, the bank um, index. Again, that's bounced back up. Um, sold off a little bit here on yesterday's interest rate announcement. And the resources index hanging in there didn't really become oversold uh, in, in the general sell-off. It was one of the few sectors, thanks to the, the big iron ore miners that are holding up nicely. Um, and that's holding in there, but I wouldn't say this is necessarily a, a bullish chart. It's holding in below the moving averages. And I think it's pretty important that these levels hold. Uh, and if they don't, then obviously you're going to see a, a pretty big decline. And we haven't looked at this chart for a little while, so I thought I might just bring it up. But it's the um, uh, yeah. the iron ore price uh, and the Chinese yuan. And as you can see, that diverged. Uh, when was that divergence? That occurred back in May. Uh, and the iron ore prices continued to move higher while the Chinese yuan relative to the US dollar has, made, has stayed uh, pretty weak. So... Again, I'm not sure if that is a divergence that will um, that will continue or whether the, the iron ore price will will fall back down. But this has been this resilience in the iron ore price has been the main reason why the resource index is, is held up. If that resilience doesn't continue, uh, you're going to see falls below um, below this level of support here and 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 ongoing ongoing falls. Uh, from there now just quickly we'll go through this is the small odds index obviously it's had a really strong bounce as well along with the rest of the market and starting to come up against uh starting to come up against a bit of resistance here at the 50-day moving average so the key thing to to note is in, in the aussie market the asx 200 small odds both still under the moving averages at the same time mm -hmm. they've broken down out of consolidation channels so even if we are at a low, it's it's a low probability bet to say, okay, I'm going to buy this low while you're in a downtrend, um, and and there needs to be a fair bit more work done to become confident that uh, that that might be you know a, a, a rally that has has legs. 
let's see what else is there to look at. Um, just on the real interest rates, we look at this um, real interest rates are the, sorry, this is the tips bond price. So it's the inverse of real interest rates. So here we've rallied a little bit over the past couple of weeks, which indicates that real interest rates are coming down and that's providing a little bit of relief for asset prices. So this is partly the reason behind the rally as well. Um, and that goes to the comment that you mentioned before, Kirill, about uh, lower bond yields um, helping helping uh, asset prices because the market thinks, okay, well, lower lower yields equals higher uh, higher asset values. So there is a little bit of relief um, here from that. And you're seeing that in the bond funds as well. Um, TLT, which is the long-term US Treasury bond, rallied a little bit uh, from very oversold levels. As you can see here, very oversold rallied a bit, but again, only up to the 50-day moving average at the moment, seeing some resistance around there. And the Aussie bond fund uh, that I track, which is a composite bond ETF, broke down below uh, below support here, very oversold at these levels and has since rallied back above support. So it'd be interesting to follow this. If the RBA is done with their rate rises and the, the market reaction indicated that could be the case, um, this could be a false break of these long-term lows uh, and it might be a, a part of this whole large bottoming process, which would be bullish for this bond fund, but I think it obviously got more work to do, hasn't even rallied back up to the 50-day moving average here. So it still looks looks pretty weak. Uh, and just a couple of other ones on the, um, on the uh, issue of whether this is a, a lasting bounce or not. Uh, these are just some of the internal indicators that I look at um, last week or at those lows. We saw a lot of stocks that had been really oversold, and this is an indication of how many stocks um, have their relative strength index below 30, which is quite large. Um, so that's come right back down, which indicates that this oversold condition is clearing. Um, similar thing here with the amount of stocks, uh, amount of ASX 200 stocks above the 200-day moving average. So that's moving up as well. So all these oversold conditions are, um, are getting cleared. This one is uh, new 52-week lows. So just a few weeks ago, you had a really high amount of uh, ASX 200 stocks at 52-week lows. They've all obviously rallied from those lows and that's come right back down to those levels. So all these indications that we're clearing oversold levels, same thing here, amount of number of ASX 200 stocks within 20% of their 52-week highs that got quite low here, really sharp falls, bounce back up. Um, again, this is starting to trend down. So I don't think this is the start of a new trend. I think this is probably going to continue down further in the months ahead. And lastly, the Aussie VIX index, which popped up a little bit, but it wasn't anywhere near the stress levels that we've seen at these other major lows uh, in 2022. So again, you know, nothing really to indicate to me that this is a, a lasting low. And I just wanted to point out at the bottom here, Macquarie, um, I'll yeah. get rid of this because I don't, don't really need that. Uh, Macquarie is such a good stock to follow because it's a real indicator of the amount of um, amount of liquidity or what mm. the liquidity conditions are like, what the credit conditions are like in the global economy. Because uh, Macquarie is your classic um, uh, money shuffler, basically. It, it, it buys assets, it repackages them, it sells them off. And when condition, 
credit conditions are strong and liquidity is strong, Macquarie will do really well. Uh, and when things can, credit conditions are getting a bit tight, that's when Macquarie struggles. And this breakdown here out of this uh, consolidation pattern is quite telling. Uh, it came out with its results uh, last week, I think it was. Um, worse than expected. They did announce a buyback, which uh, gave their share price a bit of a boost. But to me, this just shows a, a very well-run company in dealing with conditions that are uh, suggesting tight money, tight credit conditions. Mm -hmm. And the fact that it hasn't bounced based on all this um, optimism mm -hmm. that we are you know, potentially at a, a point in the cycle where it's safe to go back in the water uh, is just another indication for me that uh, we need to to maintain a, a, a relatively cautious stance at this point. So um, with that, I'll throw it back to you, Kirill. Well, I think, yeah, thank you for that. Great charts. Maybe I'll do a quick fire round and throw some questions at you based on what you've just said. You mentioned iron ore prices, and I think um, one of our editors, Callum Newman, really likes to talk about iron ore prices and how resilient they have been. And I think one question, obviously, is why have iron ore prices been so resilient? Quick answer, no idea. Okay. <laughs> Next it, question. It's, it's, uh, I think you have to be a real genuine China watcher to understand. Mm -hmm. I mean, iron ore is all about China. Mm -hmm. And if you look at what I've learned over the years is that if you look at China from a superficial level, uh, you'll generally get it wrong. And uh, often the layman will look at China and think, how can this continue? And yeah. especially when it comes to the housing market and they are trying to, I guess, do a controlled implosion of the housing market. So the question is, and, and we, everyone knows they've been through a massive credit bubble. Everyone knows they've got uh, challenging demographics. Everyone knows their local governments have huge debt issues, uh, yet a centrally controlled economy, I think, has a lot more, I wouldn't say resilience, I don't know if resilience is the right word, but has a lot more levers to pull yeah. to keep things going longer than what you think they can they can go. So um, it's a long answer to the question of I don't know why iron ore prices are, are managing to hold up uh, as long as they, they are. The other one to really think about is China is probably becoming the steelmaker for the world as well. Mm -hmm. Um and this is the irony of this whole green, uh, this whole green sort of revolution is that countries that say, okay, steelmaking is bad, we're going to shut down our steelmaking operations, it just gets shifted to China, which has got even worse environmental regulations for their steelmaking than anywhere else in the world. So, um, as, as a guess, I'm, I'm assuming that China is just through its um, mm -hmm. almost environmental arbitrage because it doesn't have the environment environmental regulations that the West does, it makes steel a lot cheaper uh, and it will import the iron ore to make that steel. So uh, it's a guess, but um, the resilience has been there and uh, who am I to argue? <laughs> and if, if iron ore prices start falling sharply, would you be worried? Uh, not necessarily worried. Um, well, personally and for my subscribers, I haven't got positions in iron ore stocks. I just think it's a it's a... They're very well-run companies. They've got world-class assets, so they can produce a lot of this stuff at um, very high margins. Um, but those margins will get squeezed a bit at lower prices. Um, I think a couple of months ago when we were talking about this, um, those, I mean, Rio, for example, its share price fell below $100. 
and that was the market saying, okay, we're, you know, we're pricing in lower iron ore prices. And then that turned around and, and back off to the race as they went. So I'd be more inclined to want to buy them when the market was starting to get more fearful and stay pricing in say $80 uh, a, a ton for iron ore. But at the moment, um, I think that they're, they're probably priced fairly if you think iron ore prices will stay high. But if you think iron ore prices are going back to 80 bucks, I wouldn't, I, I wouldn't want to be buying them. And the other thing to consider if iron ore prices do go back to 80 bucks is just the impact on, uh, you know, I guess the current, current account, um, mm deficit in Australia, the trade situation and the royalty intake for, for some of the governments. But, you know, I don't think that's a huge issue. You know, 80 bucks, 80 bucks a ton, they're still going to be making decent money on that for sure. Yeah, and I think that's something that Callum has said for, for a while now, that even if prices go down from 100 to 80, the really well-run iron ore companies are still going to be printing cash because their margins are so high anyway. Uh, well, another question I have is... Uh, the economists that I follow, and I think something like uh, Rosenberg or Lacey Hunt, there definitely seems to be a, a bit of a divergence in, in that community about where the US economy is headed. I see some opinions that sort of gloating about the recession that wasn't and sort of making fun of economists that have been predicting a recession in the US for the last year. And there's others, for example, like Rosenberg and Lacey Hunt that are saying, no, hold on, uh, conditions are actually worsening and, and just you wait. So there's definitely a divergence. And my question to you is, have you experienced this before? Is this maybe a, a, a common occurrence among macroeconomists that are always sort of maybe disagreeing with each other? Or has this disagreement been something that you've noticed more usual uh, this year? Well, I think it's probably more so than, than usual this year, just because of the really unique conditions that yeah. the global economy has been through. Like the tightening cycle has just been extreme based on uh, recent history. So so anyone in the market probably hasn't seen a tightening cycle like they've seen. And and, and the, the knee-jerk reaction is to say, well, surely this will cause a recession. We've gone from a decade of QE and, and loose money to all of a sudden QT, quantitative tightening, and, and rapid interest rate rises. Surely that's going to plunge the economy into recession. I think what people probably aren't considering so much is how loose fiscal policy has been. Mm -hmm. So the US economy is running budget deficits in excess of 5 and 6% of GDP. And I think next year's forecast is for over 6% of GDP uh, budget deficit. Um, so that, that has a huge counter impact on, on the ability of central banks to, to tighten money. And we saw that just this week. The reason why the RBA is having to tighten is because governments are running you know, a pretty loose fiscal ship at the same time as letting in um, or opening the doors to uh, a half a million people that are uh, increasing increasing demand, increasing demand obviously for housing, uh, housing and rents have a have a big impact on uh, on inflation. So the wh whenever you've got really loose fiscal policy, you're going to have to have especially tight monetary policy. Now these economists are saying that there's enough evidence in the pipeline to say that monetary policy will win. And in Lacey Hunt's case, he talks about the longer-term detrimental impact on economic growth of uh, fiscal spending when your uh, when your fiscal uh, debt ratios are, I think, above ninety percent to GDP. Um, so what he's saying is that that large fiscal spending that has happened since COVID will feed into 
uh, will fe- have a negative feedback loop, a negative multi- multiplier effect on the, on the US economy. So again, it's it's about all those lags that that you have to take into account and and how long that will take. Um, no one really knows. And to be honest, as a, as an investor, it's not you don't have to really worry about whether whether a recession is is coming or not. What you have to worry about is what has the market priced in and what is the probability of a recession versus what the market is pricing in. Now, as I said at the at the start, the U.S. market is the analyst expectations for the S and P five hundred is twelve percent EPS growth next year. So they're not expecting a recession at all. Now, I would say, is that a market that I want to invest in? Not that you know, not that any of us are really investing in the S and P five hundred. Maybe a few people are, have got ETF exposure for the S and P five hundred, but just as a general example of how you should think about it, to me, the probability of a recession in the US is much higher than what the market is pricing in. Um, so, if the market went down to putting, uh, you know, fifteen times earnings, then I would be much more bullish about the market. But at the moment, it's seventeen times forward earnings, and if those earnings don't eventuate, you're looking at twenty times. In which case, you'd want the bond market to fall considerably to even make the equity market look like a, a, a good bet at this point. So. And and that comes back to the reason I've been saying to my subscribers, you, you probably should have a position in the bond market mm. at this time. Interest rates will buy it. They will have an effect at some at some point. There is a lot of pressure on governments not to continue spending. And even I think uh, Treasurer Chalmers has been talking yep. about pulling back some of the, the planned infrastructure spending because he knows that that spending is having an impact and going to cause more interest rate rises than what Mm-hmm. There should be, and that's not good at the ballot box. So, um, interest rate tight, tighter monetary policy will win out, uh, but it, it, it's having there's a bit of a tug of war effect mm-hmm. at the moment, and that's why you're seeing these divergences of opinion. And you know, I've, I read many people who say, you know, there's no sign of an economy. It's, I mean, sorry, no sign <laughs> of a recession for the US economy. Um, and you could argue that that's similar to Australia and I would argue that in many ways that's probably right there's there's mm-hmm. a certain subset of the economy that is experiencing recessionary conditions right now and a lot of that is probably in in retail and and things yeah. where uh mortgage mortgage um owners are, are the ones that are really impacted and there's other parts of the economy that are that are flying so it it really comes down to what sectors you want to look at for stocks uh and then as i said what what are those stocks pricing in? Are they are they pricing in good outcomes or bearish outcomes? And uh, if the pricing in is more bearish than what you think is reasonable, then to me that's where you should buy. But just speaking of that, like I'm not really seeing anything in the market at the moment that's really standing out as a contrarian mm-hmm. opportunity. It's sort of you know, like we spoke about REITs uh, a couple of months ago. Everyone hated REITs, um, and they've bounced quite nicely since the bond yield. Um, the pressure has come off the bond yields, but again, they're all, they're still in downtrend. So it's not as if they've they've turned around or anything like that. They still look like they're they're pretty good value longer term for me. If you think you know conditions, uh, sorry, inflation has peaked, but in terms of other sectors in the market that are particularly um, interesting from a contrarian perspective. I'm, I'm probably struggling to find sectors. Maybe there's individual stocks out there that you could look at, but from a sector perspective, it's um, yeah, it's difficult to find anything that really stands out at the moment. 
Yeah, it's slim pickings. But I think what you just said about the perspective of looking at what the market is pricing in and then assessing those odds is probably one of the most important lessons in investing. And you don't necessarily have to make judgments, hard judgments on where the economy is going. You, you sort of have to just figure out and go backwards. What's the market thinking is going to happen and how likely is that? And then just make uh, bets probabilistically based on that. And I think that's just a better way to go. And that's just timeless wisdom from Greg Canavan. I think before <laughs> before we wrap up, though, we can't not uh, mention the Reserve Bank's decision. Uh, I know you've hated the the decision. You you didn't think it was warranted, but they did raise anyway. I think it was largely expected by other economists, and I think the market overall sort of expected it as well. Um, the biggest takeaway for me, I think, was the the statement. Usually, it's just a copy paste job. This time around, there were a lot of revisions. A whole paragraph was cut. A whole new one was um, added. But the biggest change was obviously about inflation expectations. The Reserve Bank is admitted that inflation isn't coming down as fast as it expected. And I think it's going to revise its uh, forecast and going to release that on Friday. And that was the biggest takeaway for me. What, what was your biggest takeaway? My biggest takeaway was the reaction of the bond market. Yeah. Uh, so the bond market... Uh, fell. Oh, sorry, I should say the uh, bond yields fell and and bond prices rallied, and that to me is an indication the bond market says, okay, well this tightening is going to do the job, and it will take more pressure off uh, inflation. And we think that the RBA is done with this rate rise. Mm-hmm. Um, the reason, just to be clear, the reason I don't agree with the rate rise is because I just think there's limited ability for monetary policy at the moment to continue to impact on the areas that need to be impacted. So, for example, um, a rate rise isn't going to create more gas and oil uh, and electricity. A rate rise isn't going to create more housing that's needed for our, you know, influx of, of, of immigrants. Um, so there's, there's all these things that a rate rise is not going to achieve yet will, and, and it will take second-order effects for that to flow through. So, so that so if the RBA continues to think its rate rises should be having an impact on on certain inflation, petrol, electricity, housing, that they're kidding themselves. It's not that's not that's not where the interest rate rise has the impact. The interest rate rise has the impact on discretionary income spend, um, and I would argue that even though house prices have out of every uh, asset in the world, nearly all of them have gone down as rate rises have gone up, except residential property in Australia, yeah. and and that's not because of in, that's not because of monetary policy. That's because of the huge uh, amount of demand, mm-hmm. and I would argue that in, in in many cases at the high end of the market, there's uh, a lot of money still fly, flushing around asset markets, and people are buying a lot of these high end markets with cash. Um, from selling out of businesses or or shares or, or whatever it might be, so they're they're putting um, they're putting money into the into the housing market from their from their business transactions, but at the sort of more uh, I guess generic part of the market, which is the middle class market, you got two uh, two income mm-hmm. households that are required to manage mortgages these days. So even though the amount of money that you can borrow um, is less. People are putting in, uh, I guess, contributing more of their their incomes in order to service those uh, those mortgages. The more money you have to use to service those mortgages is less money 
there is for spending elsewhere in the economy. So that will take a while to flow through and that's going to have an impact on certain inflationary parts of the economy. Um, but it's as I said, it's not going to affect petrol, it's not going to affect electricity, it's not going to affect um, housing. And and that's that's my criticism. And I know the RBA is is caught between a rock and a hard place. If it didn't raise interest rates on Tuesday, it would have been absolutely smashed. It would have been considered not serious on inflation. It would have lost its credibility. So I can see why they've had had to raise rates. But partly they ameliorated that by, as you said, changing some of the language mm-hmm. in the statement. And I think that's what the bond market reacted to. Three-year bonds fell, which are particularly sensitive to uh, the RBA's um, expected moves, mm-hmm. and the 10-year rate fell re- reasonably considerably too. So I think... It is going to bite. It is going to flow through and hurt the economy more. Um, I'm just sceptical of whether you're going to get those moves in inflation that the RBA expects. And I think you'll see in those revisions that they come out with that they will be uh, expecting inflation to stay higher for longer as well. And that means rates will stay far higher for longer, which will put continue to put pressure on asset prices, the economy, corporate earnings, all that sort of stuff. Hence my... Uh, um, I wouldn't say confidence, but uh, hence my sort of uh, feeling that, you know, this market hasn't necessarily bottomed, but we're just bouncing from those oversold conditions. Yeah, well, on that note, I think we'll leave it there until next week. And I was going to say too, Kirill, if you do like this episode and you want mm-hmm. us to discuss certain things that yes. we don't discuss, um, feel free to leave that in the comments uh, and we will uh, we'll try to get to it. Yeah, and I think from from our last episode, people enjoyed your hair, Greg. That's that's the one takeaway. Yeah, it's bizarre. <laughs> <laughs>